0: Uh, Thanks Ali, I do keep that passage open. I was trying to think of an illustration today and uh, we're going to learn that, um, let me just start that, uh, that God's mercy is surprising and quiet. And so here's my opening illustration, you ready? Couldn't keep this up for long this morning either, it's so awkward. Anyway, let's pray. Uh, Dear Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you uh, for this uh, life and uh, this passage on David. Thank you for the example he sets us. Uh, But as we consider your uh, intervention in his life this week, we pray that we would uh, remember your great mercy, your great love and compassion towards us through the Lord Jesus. So we pray that you glorify yourself. We pray that you'd point us to your Son. We pray that you'd speak to us through your word, by your Spirit. Amen. Uh, Well, it's entirely possible that this chapter twenty-nine is uh, happened on exactly the same day as last week's chapter, chapter Uh, twenty-eight. They they certainly happen within days of each other because it's all about the same event. The purpose of these two chapters, uh, twenty-eight, is about Saul. uh, Twenty-nine this week is about David. Is to show us a contrast or the continuing contrast between David and Saul, and there is a stark contrast if you like, chapter 28 uh, showed us the pain and the frailty and the fear and the pointlessness of being a man or a woman who seeks their own heart uh, and their own ways. That's what we saw in 28. And chapter 29 shows the result of being a man or a woman of God's heart, after God's own heart. Now, to refresh our memories back in chapter 27... David is still running for his life from King Saul. It's been going on for most of 1 Samuel uh, now. Uh, And he's on the run with his 600 militia uh, who are with him. And in chapter 27, they took the desperate decision to flee to the Israelites' arch enemy, the Philistines, for safety. That's how bad his situation had got. Needless to say, since David has been with the Philistines, he's been on best behavior uh, he doesn't want them to think that he's not loyal. He doesn't want to risk his own life and his men's lives. He doesn't want to be taken back to Saul. He's in a, a tough situation. He's, he's been behaving himself. Of course, though, the Philistines do what the Philistines do best, and that's to attack the Israelites. And it's not long before they come after the Israelites again. Uh, that's the scene at the beginning of the last chapter, and this one... Uh, We're taking right back to that very point to see this contrast between Saul and David. Now, Saul, if you remember, we've got a long introduction just to recap 28 so we can set up this contrast. Uh, Saul, if you remember, sought uh, demonic guidance, didn't he? He he went in search of the Witch of Endor. Uh, You can see where J.R. Tolkien got his uh, inspiration. The, The sort of dark forces of the Lord of the Rings spring to mind, don't we? That's where he went for his inspiration, for his reassurance. Uh, and yet what he gets is not reassurance of victory or that he's doing the right thing. Uh, he gets something very different. Have a look uh, just back to 28, uh, chapter 28, verse 17. This is the result that he's promised through uh, Samuel, who he calls up from the dead or perhaps an evil spirit controlled by God. We're, we're not exactly sure, but uh, listen back to Adam's sermon last week uh, to think more about that. But this is the message Saul gets, chapter 28, Verse 17. The Lord has done what he predicted through me. This is Samuel speaking. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to one of your neighbours, to David. Because you did not obey the Lord or carry out his fears wrath against the Amalekites, back in chapter 15, the Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will deliver both Israel and you into the hands of the Philistines, not looking good, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me, in other words, dead, like Samuel, really not looking good. The Lord will also give the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. So the prophecy to Saul uh, of getting, is getting close. The one where he's going to lose his kingdom and David will take over. It's getting really close. And he's reminded again of this, uh, the time he failed to obey the Lord fully in chapter 15 when he fought the Amalekites. Interestingly, next week David's going to do what Saul failed to do and take out the Amalekites and this looming battle against the Philistines is not going to go well for Saul. We know that. He's going to lose his life. The Israelites are going to be uh, are going to lose to the Philistines. So there if you like is the result of a life lived for yourself. Uh, it's a life of fear that seeks and clings to sort of dangerous philosophies and ideas. There's no concrete truth anywhere to be found. Saul is in trouble and ultimately seeking this sort of life where we seek our own way ends with your kingdom failing and judgment and death before God Almighty. And it's true for Saul as it's as true for any of us here today. Uh, The New Testament writer Paul speaks of this self-serving attitude as one that means we're enslaved to sin. Uh, We live to please ourselves Uh, not God. And God, of course, is worthy of being served. So sin is simply a word used to describe our rebellion or rebellious acts against God. But whatever you call it, uh, Paul says this about it in Romans 6.23. He's very clear. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. That's what Saul has earned. That's his wage for living a life uh, looking to please himself after his own heart. For ignoring God uh, it's a fearful life it's a self-serving life and the wages of sin is death and I'm not sure why so many choose that sort of life when it's put like that I'm not sure why we even if we call ourselves Christians so often choose sin instead of the alternative when the alternative chapter 29 is so much better And what's so good about this alternative, as we're about to see, is that it's not actually dependent on us. The results depend entirely on the surprising and the quiet mercy from the Provider God Almighty. So, into chapter 29. David's situation could not be much worse, could it? He's rightly or wrongly fled to the Philistines, and now the Philistines are going in for an attack on Saul and the Israelites, David's own People And David and his men are expected to go and fight for the Philistines against their own people. Uh, It's right back at the beginning of chapter 28, in fact, verse 1 and 2. Uh, In those days the Philistines gathered their forces to fight against Israel. Akish, who's a Philistine leader who David is with, said to David, You must understand that you and your men will accompany me in the army, David said, Then you will see for yourself what your servant can do. It's a slightly cryptic response, but uh, he's in a hard place, isn't he? And Akish replied, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. I mean, what else could David do? Uh, he yeah. either dies probably at the hands of Akish, if he shows now that he's not going to be loyal to him, or he fights for the Philistines against his own people uh, and his own king. And I think the kind of messy nature of life is really captured in this chapter, in fact, in a lot of 1 Samuel. Because we get no mention or no commentary on what David is thinking, what's going through his mind, how he's feeling. We're not told what is right or wrong in this passage as far as he's concerned and, and what's going on. He is just stuck between a rock and a hard place, quite literally. And he, he has no options, does he? No options at all. No, no option is good. He either uh, turns against the people who are protecting him and probably dies or he fights and fights against his own people and his own king. We already know, though, David isn't prepared to lay a hand on King Saul. He's spared his life twice before, hasn't he? Uh, and surely he's not prepared to start killing his own people in battle. Uh, there's not even uh, any commentary on whether David did the right thing in going to the Philistines in the first place and pledging allegiance to them. Life is just heavy, it is complicated, it is messy, it is confusing. And we find ourselves in this in our lives uh, in very similar situations, don't we? Where we just don't know what the right thing to do is. Do we do this or do that? They're both bad options. Perhaps uh, you can reflect on your life and think through the times you've prayed prayers like, Why, Lord, have you forsaken me? Or, Help me, please, I, I just don't know what to do. Or, I just can't cope with this any longer. Lord. Those kind of prayers we'll all have prayed at some point or if you're younger then I hate to put a damper on things but those times will come. We'll all experience those kind of things one day won't we? We all have, we all will. But that is no reason to abandon God and seek our own will. For Saul, chapter 28 charted his course, didn't it? And showed us the terrible result of death and fear and failure before God. For David, though, he's not forsaken God. He's not lived a life to please himself, even though many of his decisions may have been questionable. He's still a man seeking God, albeit weakly at times. And so his result will be very different. So that's the situation he's in. Let's see what happens. So uh, verse 2, 5... Philistine commanders turn up to join Akish on the battle camp before they move off to battle. In fact, it says hundreds and thousands of units come up. That's not an ice cream topping, for those of you of a certain age. Uh, That's just a lot of people. And the commanders turn up as well. Verse 3, the commanders of the Philistines asked, "Uh, what about these Hebrews? What about David and his men? What's going on here? And Akish replied, is this not David, who was an officer of Saul's of Saul, king of Israel, he's already been with me for over a year, and from the day he left Saul until now, I have found no fault in him. Are the Philistine commanders convinced that David's not going to turn in battle? No, but the Philistine commanders were angry with Achish and said, send the man back that he may return to the place you assigned him. He must not go with us into battle, or he will turn against us during the fight. How better could he regain his master's favour than by taking the heads of our own men? So it, the other commanders think David's going to go into battle with them, and then to prove that he's worthy of being saved by Saul, uh, that he'll turn on them. We actually know that's not going to work, don't we? Saul spared Saul. Sorry, David spared Saul, Saul's life twice, and it hasn't worked out so well. Uh, still there in verse five, isn't this the David they sang about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Everybody knows the song about David. They've been learning it in the preschools. Uh, That's how famous David is, even amongst the enemies uh, across the Middle Eastern world of this time. No way, they say. He's not fighting with us. Uh, He belongs to the other side. He'll turn on us. Uh, Well, the next conversation that goes on, Akish has now got to go back to David, hasn't he, and tell him what... That the others aren't going to let him fight, uh, and uh, he goes to David, tells him he can't fight, and David presumably is utterly relieved at this point. But he can't show it, can he? He can hardly say to the, show to the, Akish that, "Phew, what a relief! I don't now have to choose sides. Perhaps I wasn't loyal to you." He's still got to pretend that he's absolutely on Akish's side, and in a sense, he is. But it's a difficult situation, isn't it so ironically, David protests. He says, whoa, 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 what have I done? I've proved my worth to you. Don't mistrust me. You've got to trust me. I'm with you. Don't turn on me. Uh, let me fight. And Akish, probably also not wanting to uh, summons the wrath of this great warrior David, who they all know the song about, uh, also then says, oh, it's not me, it's not me. It's the other commanders. They're the ones saying you can't fight. I'd have you, uh, but they won't have you. Just, you know, just, let's just appease everyone. You go back uh, to the Philistine country and all will be all right. He even says, you've been like an angel to me. Um, but the others, they just don't want you to fight. Okay, but it's not me. And undoubtedly, both of them turn away from each other to leave. And there's a massive sign of relief on their faces as they head off. David has been spared from this rock and a hard place. Uh, Verse 11, David and his men got up early in the morning, you would, wouldn't you, if you were that keen to get out of there, to go back to the land of the Philistines, and the Philistines went up to Jezreel to face the Israelites. The Philistines, ironically, uh, God's enemies, have become God's surprising instrument of mercy, yet again, for David, haven't they? Not for the first time. You remember Previously, when Saul and David were walking either side of that great mountain range, one in each valley, Saul looking to kill David. And who was it that came to the rescue? The Philistines. And Saul had to run off and save some town from the Philistines. God uses surprising mercy for his people. Uh, or perhaps you've heard the very old story of a, a village woman who was starving to death. She was, she was literally starving to death and praying to God for some bread. She just needed some bread. And she had an atheist neighbor uh, who just couldn't stand her faith. It it wound her up. She didn't believe. uh, And so she decided to prove the folly of this woman's uh, faith once and for all. So the neighbor went out and bought two loaves of bread and put it on the doorstep of this woman who had been praying. Then when she heard the woman praising and thanking God for this bread, uh, she went round to put her straight. It wasn't God who answered your prayer. It was me all along. And then this is what the woman of faith replied. Oh, yes, it was the Lord who answered my prayer, even if he used the devil to do it. Now, I don't share that story as a sort of example of how to treat your neighbours. It's probably not the most generous response to someone who's given you two loaves of bread. Uh, But more to point out that, however surprising our mercy is shown to us, God is at work. And here, God spares David yet again through a surprising means, through uh, the Philistines. Uh, I recall a, a time uh, we were heading out to Lesotho, and we'd taken, we had to take everything we needed for our three years there in three checked bags each. They were all overweight. Uh, we had an extra bag as well, full of commentaries and books that we wanted to use uh, for the work we were doing there. And we kind of hoped we'd put a bag on; it would somehow be underweight, and we'd slip a few of the commentary books in and hope we had. It. Anyway, it was a very helpful Muslim lady at the checkout who not only spent a long time with us, humoring us as we shoved these books into every little pocket uh, and trying to squeeze every gram in, but she also let us go overweight on every bag and she even let us take an extra bag too. She even knew we were Christian missionaries going out to Lesotho to teach people about Jesus. She, we had to explain what these ridiculously big books were and why we were trying to take them as well. It was to help us teach people the Bible. Uh, We thanked her, of course, but it was hardly an ambition for a Muslim lady to want the gospel of Jesus to be spread around the world. We thanked her, but it was God's surprising provision that meant we were better equipped and more at ease to go. And so he is to be praised, however surprising the provision is. And so I wonder if we need to learn from this chapter that we can reflect on our lives And see how an enemy, or or simply someone who doesn't believe in God, has been an answer to our need. And be reassured that God is at work in a surprising way through his mercy. And so we need to praise him and trust him in every situation, uh, whatever we face. But God is not just surprising in this passage. He is also quiet. He is surprising and quiet. You see, there's no proper mention of God all the way through this passage. Uh, David doesn't know what's happening in God's mind. No prophet's there to explain to him what's going to happen or what's going on. Uh, There's no visible way forward for David at all. No uh, great uh, stone tablet dropped out of the sky, carefully of course, to land next to David with some instructions. And yet, how could uh, David have avoided this terrible situation without the mercy of God at work, however surprising? So why doesn't God declare it aloud? Why doesn't he tell David or declare it? Why doesn't he tell the Philistines what's going on, that he's at work? Why doesn't he send a great new prophet? Well, I think there's something um, powerful, isn't there, about an unsaid or an unexplained situational relationship. You see, will David not look back at this occasion, uh, on this event, and say, God was very quiet, uh, silent even, yet I knew he had me. Perhaps like two close siblings who sit silently after a tragedy, maybe. uh, Neither needs to say anything or even do anything. Their care and their love and support for one another is more real without explanation. Neither would benefit, in fact, it would almost... Make things worse, wouldn't it? If each was just having to constantly reassure the other, I'm here for you, I love you, it's okay. The silence shows it more powerfully. It demonstrates the depth of relationship behind what's going on. Nothing needs to be declared in the situation, in, uh, they simply know. A lifetime of experience of growing together has proved and developed a relationship that cannot be improved by declaration. And similarly, David, on reflection, no doubt, can look back at this time as being one of the endless times that he has seen the love and the care of God in his life. Declaration from God is not required in each and every specific situation for David or for us. Already, we know God's intentions towards David, don't we? And they are very good. He will be king. He's been promised. God may not declare every intention in every situation for us, but he has, of course, declared himself once and for all and fully and sufficiently in his word by his son Jesus. David has been given the promises he needs for his life, and now quietness is no threat to his faith in this chapter. And so have we. We have the promises of Jesus declared clearly in his word in the Bible. And now quietness, even silence, in specific situations is no threat to our faith. Perhaps in our desperate times when God seems so quiet, even silent, there's some reassurance that uh, so deep is his love and care for you, already proved beyond question in the very surprising and quiet time of Jesus as he died in our place. That no more declaration into this specific situation we find ourselves would, would even help or is required. Because God cannot love us more. He cannot make it clearer than he already has. He has freed you from those wages of sin. He's freed us from death. And he will deliver us in the way that he knows best. In every quiet situation. Maybe surprisingly, but it will be for his glory and for our good. Uh, Perhaps the best illustration of God working in surprising and quiet ways has to be the work of Jesus himself, doesn't it? The Son of God, almighty, in heaven, born in a quiet little town, Bethlehem, in a stable, Uh, growing up in obscurity and quietness. For just three short years, he would teach and heal like no man has or ever will again, and yet he ends up being killed on a cross to silence him, again, so that no one hears of his name. God came down to take the wages of sin, death upon himself. Could it get any more surprising than that, God Almighty, coming down to free us. He was led like a lamb to a slaughter, wasn't he? And as a sheep before a shearer was silent, quiet. Humanity wanted to silence him on the cross. They should have ended his life and it would have been the end. It should have been quiet and no more to be heard. And yet the surprising and quiet event of 2,000 years ago has become the only hope for all of humanity. The resurrection of Jesus to new life has become the loudest and the most celebrated event in all of history. And uh, that verse in Romans finishes 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, if there's anyone here who's perhaps still living like Saul, uh, one uh, a life of fear that only leads to death and judgment before God, then we need to repent before this Lord Jesus, the quiet and surprising saviour of the world. Perhaps you need to talk to a Christian friend, or a parent, or read your Bibles, talk to one of the staff or an elder, and hear God declare his promises to you in his word. And then for those of us that believe uh, this week, why don't we spend some time thinking through our lives. Uh, Firstly, have we failed to praise God for a time we didn't realise he was at work? It was so surprising that it didn't look like or seem like it could have been God, surely? So we assumed it was luck or chance, or worse still, our own sheer determination or brilliance. However surprising, God is always at work. God is always sovereign over all things. And we should praise him for every deliverance, however small and however big. Secondly, is God seemingly quiet in your current situation and your current trials? Is is God quiet, even silent? Well, how are you going to be reassured of his love and care without his need for specific declaration each time we face trials? It's a good question to ask, isn't it? We've looked at it already, isn't it? We're going to recall and praise Jesus for taking our death and giving us life. He could not declare any more mercy or grace or love to us than that. And as such, we can have the courage to keep our hearts seeking his will, uh, seeking God's will at all times, whatever we face. Even when this life seems beyond manageable, we know that God loves us. He's proved it and declared it beyond words. There's no more for him to say other than for us to trust and know his great love. Uh, We're going to give the last words to David, and perhaps this will help uh, you if you're having a, a hard time at the moment. Uh, perhaps these words were on his heart as he uh, faced this rock-in-a-hard-place situation of chapter 29. We're, we're not sure there's no introduction to this psalm. Uh, but let's make this our song this week. It's Psalm 30. I'm going to read verses 1 to 5. We'll use this as a prayer to finish. Psalm 30, 1 to 5. I will exalt you, Lord, for you lifted me out of the depths and did not let my enemies gloat over me. Lord, my God, I called to you for help, and you healed me. You, Lord, brought me from the realm of the dead. You spared me from going down to the pit. Sing the praises of the Lord. You, his faithful people, praise his holy name, for his anger lasts only a moment, but his favour lasts a lifetime. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. Amen. Amen.